Hello and welcome to this episode of The Proteomics Show. This is part of our special limited time series of The Proteomics Show called The Road to Chicago, sponsored by US Hupo. Hi, I'm Ben Osborne, and I'm here with the osteophobogenic uh, person in proteomics, Dr. Benjamin Alley. And yes, we featured uh, Dr. Amanda Humman, not human, at Ohio State University. Yeah, it was a pretty awesome discussion. Uh, we talked about spheroids, we talked about bees, we talked about sea slugs, um, and it was just a lot of fun getting to talk with Amanda. Um, so enjoy. Welcome to this week's N Squared podcast. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting uh, me. I guess, yeah, we're really excited. So I, we'll just start off with the technical parts. You're coming to US HUPO and you're going to be talking in general about what? I am going to be talking about uh, drug testing in three-dimensional cell cultures. So my group does a lot of work developing cell culture model systems um, as models of tumors. So, you know, a lot of research can be done with animal models, uh, but those are, you know, mice and rats and things like that. But those are kind of expensive and really intimidate me. So uh, instead, my group has been working hard to take cell cultures, so like your standard HeLa cell culture that everybody knows about, instead of growing that in like a Petri dish in like a flat layer, which is how a lot of cell culture is done, my group instead takes those same cells and grows them under conditions where they will recapitulate the original structure um, from whence they came. So since we work with cancer cells, we grow them in a way that they regrow uh, tumor mimics. And then we do a lot of analytical testing on those tumor mimics. So the thought here is that if you're going to test a drug, instead of testing it on cells that are grown in the Petri dish in a flat layer, let's instead test them in a uh, three-dimensional system that looks like a tumor. And then we get a much better idea as to whether or not they're, they're going to work well um, when they're moved first to animal models and then to, to uh, human beings. So we have developed a, um, a way to introduce isotopic labels to the different areas of these tumor models. And because mass spectrometry is, at the end of the day, kind of a big expensive weighing machine, we can then detect these isotopic labels and yeah. figure out how the cells in the different parts of our tumor have responded to two different types of drugs. So essentially, we're trying to... Um, do a, a better way to do drug testing. So you still have to take things into animal models, but there's um, doing it this way reduces the failure rate of um, instead of taking everything from two dimensions in cell culture into animal models, we can we can test it this way instead. So I'm going to be talking about um, the the efforts that my group has put into uh, to develop this platform where mass spectrometry is our readout. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from your talk, but, but how do you build one of these 3D cultures? Well, it, the cells kind of do it themselves, which is awesome. So if you take a lot of the immortalized cell lines, and again, I'll use HeLa as an example, and you just throw them in a flat Petri dish, the cells will just kind of spread out and grow in a, in a flat mono layer. But if we take them and we just put them down on a curved surface, so just kind of like a meniscus of uh, we use agarose you could also use a curved uh, round bottom plate for example what happens is the cells are brought into contact with each other 
And again, they start growing to try to recapitulate whatever organ they grew from. So since we are working with cells that are derived from colon tumors, uh, when we take these cells and we put them in these cell culture conditions, we can grow mimics of colon tumors and we can grow, not exaggerating here, we can grow thousands of these in the lab. And uh, it gives us a really accurate model with which to do testing. Um, and so the, the huge advantage of what we do is that we can do many more statistical replicates. So if you're doing mouse studies, you know, mice are really expensive. And so you may or maybe you're going to have like an N of three or maybe an N of five of different conditions. Um, and we can easily do, um, you know, 90, 90 of these little tumors at a time in each of our replicates. Um, so, you know, we're working with human cells, so that's a nice advantage. And then also we can do a lot more statistical replicates. How, how big do these get? They get to be one millimeter in diameter. Um, so just so at the point where you can start seeing them uh, with the naked eye. So if, if we walk down to my lab and looked in the incubator, uh, my, my lab, we'd have, again, thousands of these um, growing. And what's what's nice about them is that the these three-dimensional cell cultures have different uh, regions. So what happens is as these grow out and as they grow larger, they develop these radially symmetric gradients. So the outside of the three-dimensional cell culture has plenty of oxygen, plenty of nutrients, but oxygen and nutrients have a hard time penetrating into the center. So what happens is the very center of the spheroid, uh, those cells don't get adequate oxygen, don't get adequate nutrients, so they all die out and become necrotic, which is actually the same thing that happens in a really fast-growing human tumor. So the cells in the different regions of the spheroid are existing in different chemical microenvironments. And so what we are doing, again, we, we add uh, isotopic labels. So we use SILAC, so you know, very traditional uh, proteomic approach there. So we add isotopic labels to these discrete different regions of the spheroid. And then what we can do is we can look at how do the cells in the different chemical microenvironments respond uh, to different drug treatments because we can easily access these different populations. So if, for example, you're trying to do drug testing with cells in a, in a Petri dish, in a flat Petri dish, those cells are homogeneous. They all respond the same and it's, it's very artificial. But doing it this way, the cells are growing in a, in a more complicated um, chemical microenvironment that mimics that of a tumor. Um, so we can get uh, much more accurate uh, data that way. And, and that sounds really elegant too, because, you know, I've well, done a lot with, you know, like inserting them into matrix gel and those kind of things. That all you ever see is matrix gel. For the, you know, yeah. for the right. We yeah. avoid matrix gel like the plague. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And how do you, uh, so, and, and I, we don't need to get into like a contentious topic, but something that's always kind of frustrated me about a lot of the single cell work where Ink. you're separating things out by liquid or just by whatever versus actually looking at things. Um, I mean, so here you're growing up cancer cells. You know that they're all different. You see where they are. Do you ever take these same experiments and then do like a traditional single cell analysis? Like, other people would be doing and be like, do these line up, like do these jive. So we haven't, so we've done a little bit of single cell analysis. Um, so uh, many years ago when I worked at uh, the University of Notre Dame, um, my colleague was uh, Norm DeVicke and Norm did a lot of uh, single cell analysis. And so we did do some studies with him looking at 
single cells by capillary electrophoresis with laser-induced fluorescence just to see if when we looked at the single cells, did they line back up with the, the spheroid? Um, and we found that we could, uh, based on the metabolic patterns we saw in the single cell, we could match it back to where where they came from whence they came in the spheroid, I guess the best way to put it. Um, so we did that with, um, we did that work with Norm. Um, again, that was capillary electrophoresis with laser-induced fluorescence. My lab has not yet done single cell proteomics. Um, we're not quite at that point yet. I know a lot of groups are doing exciting work in that area, but uh, we haven't done that yet. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's always a question I have when you're like, one, you're empirically, like you're observing their actual arrangement. And I just always wonder, I want to see that experiment. I guess that's yeah. kind of what I'm saying. I'd love to see that yeah. experiment. Yeah, we have all kinds of crazy ways to be able to um, look at the cells in all the different areas. So half of my group does proteomics and half of my group does imaging mass specs. And so with the imaging mass spec side of things, you know, obviously we're looking at all the spatial distributions of everything within these structures. On the proteomic side of things, we have a technique where we can um, peel the, the layers of the cells off of the spheroid. So this process is called serial trypsinization. I always use the analogy, it's like peeling an onion. So if you take a 3D cell culture and you incubate it in trypsin and you kind of rotate it on a Petri dish, the outer layers will, will slough off. So very similar again to peeling an onion and we can collect those sequentially and then we can go ahead and do, we've done proteomic analyses, we've done lipidomic analyses, we've done metabolomic analyses. Um, and, and since the radial symmetry is preserved and the radial symmetry is what matters in this model system, uh, that gives us a way to be able to generate those samples and look at them uh, with some of the more high throughput uh, omics methodologies. So you didn't want to call it like the blooming onion or the awesome blossom. <laughs> no, we've never <laughs> called it the blooming onion. You <laughs> look <laughs> like some really bad American reference. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of calories there in the blooming onions, isn't there? <laughs> but they are tasty. <laughs> I love this one as well because there's probably a thousand hard ways to do that, and and that's that just seems like such a and an, again another elegant solution to. It has, yeah. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it was one of these, I was searching to buy a laser capture microdissection device, and then thankfully one of my grad students who was good at looking at the literature found a manuscript on the serial trypsinization, and yeah, that was great. It saved me a lot of money, (laughs) and it works well. So it's good when when your grad students are uh, uh, look at the literature and see what's going on out there, right? Absolutely. Do you do, but what other structures have you done? Because I feel like I've seen some people, you know, there's like a, a porous structure that looks like a vein mm-hmm. or like a, a long, I mean, right, do you do any of these other? Mm-hmm. Yep. Non-spheroids? Yep. So we use. Like what weirdest one you've done? They're most complicated. Like Oh, the yeah. most complicated. Well, the most complicated would be actual tissue. We do a lot of imaging mass spec on actual tissues. You know, we have yeah. running on the instrument right now, we have mouse small intestines, I think, from a collaborator where they're giving them different fat diets. So obviously that's, you know, highest complexity. Um, but in terms of cell culture models, we do all of our method development with the spheroids because the spheroids are grown by immortalized, they're grown with a mo- immortalized cell lines. So they are an absolutely unlimited resource. We can grow, my students will often grow like 10 plates of these at a time. We just have tons of them. 
But what we're doing is we're developing all the methodologies so that we can then take them into um, organoids. So organoids are um, developed directly. Ben, you'd know. Um, talking about matrigel. Um, yeah, so uh, organoids are developed directly. It's the same concept as cell culture. It's just, you know, developed directly from biopsies. And so we have a collaboration right now with a group that is doing mouse organoids. Uh, and those those are really freaking hard. So those are single cell. You know, they have the budding um, hollow structures. So we have to have all these things in place so we don't smash them and distort them. And, um, you know, ideally what we would like to do there is be able to do imaging mass spectrometry on the different sections of the organoids. So the organoids are going to have the, the Krypton villi structure that you see in uh, in, the, in the intestines. Uh, and in that case, if we can do single cell imaging and look at how the, the different cells propagate up the crypt, that would be super cool. So that would be in mouse models. At some point also, um, we've talked about doing the organoids with patient-derived samples. So working in tandem with a surgeon. I had someone I was collaborating with um, uh, and, the, you know, because of moving and stuff that fell apart. So I need to find another um, collaborator here at Ohio State. But the goal would be to do patient-derived organoids with the thought of helping this for personalized medicine. So if you have a patient who has, for example, a, a colon biopsy that they give, that can be grown into 12 different organoids. And you can use that to look to see how the patient is going to respond to different therapeutics, for example, right? Because it's the, you know, actual tissue from the patient and, you know, and then hopefully, you know, my, my goal, we're looking like 15 years out, <laughs> would be that you could use these to help clinicians make decisions about what kind of treatments are going to work for that patient's cells. So, but that's, that's my, you know, that's the far, 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 sure. far down the line kind of goal there. Well, so we're building all the we're building all the analytical approaches with cell lines first, and then mouse-derived organoids to move it eventually to human-derived organoids. Quite. Uh, uh, so, what does a normal day look like for you? <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, um, depends on if it's a day I'm teaching or not. So I am currently it's teaching uh, Gen Chem for uh, majors. So um, maybe I'll start with a non-teaching day. Today's a non-teaching day for me. So I'm in my research office. Uh, my research lab is in the Cancer Center at Ohio State. Uh, I chose that specifically because I wanted to interact with uh, a lot of people in the Cancer Center and you know, people who have all kinds of cool samples and they're interested in doing you know fun analyses um so if it's a research day on a day like today today i'm wearing my jeans and my tennis shoes and i'm in my research office and walking on my treadmill desk and today's kind of chopped up into you know meetings and trying to work on manuscripts and meet with people in my lab and that's a research day so that's a lot of fun um Tomorrow for me is a teaching day. So as I said, I'm teaching Gen Chem for the majors. So at Ohio State, we have thousands of kids in Gen Chem. The class that I teach is the kind of the, the 200 who are the most motivated and excited, which is fun because they're motivated and excited. They want to be there. They also take it really seriously, which has, you know, advantages and disadvantages. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, you know, going in, doing doing lecture, having office hours, meeting with them. Uh, and then I try to come back to my research office in the later part of the day. So. Uh, 
yeah, lo- lots of meetings, lots of um, things like that. I try to carve out um, any day I'm not teaching. I try to carve out a couple hours every day for writing. I'm a big fan of the work of um, Cal Newport and all his stuff on deep work and that you really have to carve carve out time and and um yeah i yeah i don't know you guys read the cal newport stuff no 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 man no i'm gonna write that one down yeah deep work cal newport is a computer science professor at georgetown i think he's computer science yeah i think so and he studies um how to do deep work. I don't know how else to put this. So shallow work is, you know, all the emailing and all the crap we do all the time that we have to do, right? But deep work is where you actually do the stuff you that you're excited about in your job, right? Um, you know, the creative, the writing, um, the the problem solving. So, you know, setting aside time where you can do that and turn off all your notifications and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm I'm a natural introvert. I uh I'm, I don't do social media. I'm terrible about all those kind of things. I try to kind of wall myself off and give myself time to really think about, um, yeah, think think about you know science and how 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 we're going to accomplish the things we want to do. That only works for me if I can kind of block myself off. Well, and, and maybe we should just kind of skip to that um, part of the the talk. Is yeah, I mean, so because Heather. Uh, we had talked to her last week was yep. also talking about like these life, life hacks and you're, and you're bringing <laughs> up, you know, you're on your treadmill, you're talking about deep work. You've got this like really good, um, kind of optimized. It sounds like kind of balance going on. I mean, I mean, do you have, do you want to talk more about that or about hobbies or you just kind of, yeah, this, you beyond the spheroblast or the, the spheroids. Okay. Sorry. Yep. No, I, I mean, I definitely, uh, it, well, it's it, it's funny. Uh, yeah, Heather and I have talked at great length about deep work because she and I have similar philosophies on these things. That, um, yeah, that you you devote time uh, and energy to the things that you're most excited about while you're focused on them, and then the rest of the time you um, devote yourself to to other things that you really uh, enjoy. So, um, there, there's another uh, psychologist that I love. I'm going to butcher his name now. His name's Mihail uh, Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, he developed the concept of flow. And flow is when you're doing something that you enjoy it so much that time passes and you're in this like optimized state of... Um, it, 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 it can be something that's very challenging, but you just really enjoy what you're doing. So trying to, trying to carve out time to, to get to places like that, so... I don't know. In terms of hobbies, I do a lot of the things that I think I'll, probably a lot of people say, you know, reading, walking, cooking, things like that. I like to create things. So I do, I make, uh, I make stained glass windows. Um, not as many as I used to. Um, I, I started doing this as a grad student. This was my, uh, um, treat to myself after I passed my candidacy in grad school. There was a really good glass shop in Champaign Urbana called Glass FX. And they had night classes. And so I enrolled in night classes as a grad student and uh, started making stained glass windows. So I like stained glass because it's the combination of color and light. Um, and I don't know, it's just fun to, fun to yeah. make those. So that's, yeah. Is that one of Yes, I made the honeybee. Uh, yep, I did honeybee research as a postdoc. So that's one of, a, uh, one of the ones. I got to work on the um, 
honeybee genome uh, 20 years ago as a grad student. So I, I was going to say, yeah, can we, I mean, I know I'm, I'm hopping back and forth on our, on our no, stories, but that is actually something I wanted to know. Um, like side story about <laughs> me was in my postdoc, um, I had taken a lot of my blood to, yeah. to use in the lab. I was developing things and we called it bee plasma. And then we had someone show up in the lab and like, oh my God, you got bee plasma? And obviously we did it. And then I'm reading about you and you legit did bee work, right? Like, yeah. so I guess, would you like to talk, not just about that, but like kind of how you got to where you are right now, sure. you know, doing all this imaging work, but yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, no, just no. Give a little bit of that story if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I did my graduate work at University of Illinois. I worked in Jonathan Sweether's lab. Uh, and Jonathan was a great person to work for because he's someone who just gives you a lot of freedom, that which really suited my personality. I could kind of do what I wanted. Um, and the project that I was was put on was single cell um, profiling by, by Maldi Imaging. And the grad student that I was working with was uh, Ling Jun Lee, who's now a professor at, at uh, Wisconsin. Actually, she's one of the organizers for Hoopo. Um, and so Ling Jun was the one who actually trained me in mass spectrometry. Uh, and, and I spent the first year or so being terrified uh, that I had to live up to the standards that Ling Jun set because Ling Jun had 24 papers as a grad student, which I thought that was like Ow. the bar. <laughs> so that was, I had zero. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She, she, uh, it, it, Ling Jun's a machine of productivity. She's just one of the most impressive people and one of the absolute sweetest people. Um, so anyway, Ling Jun trained me to do Maldi imaging of individual neurons to be able to annotate neuropeptide genes. And uh, she left me with the project as she took off. Um, and I worked on it for another few months after she left. She went off to do her postdoc. Uh, but I found myself really wanting to do something different. I didn't want to do the exact same thing she had done because, quite frankly, she'd done it so beautifully. And uh, she had left behind large amounts of, of data. Well, at the time, we considered it a large database. Now it would be kind of a, a small database. But she had left behind annotations of 25 uh, pro-hormones. So these are great big proteins that get chopped up into neuropeptides. So she'd left behind maybe 25 of these. I had annotated another three or four or something like that as a grad student. And I became very interested in what are the patterns that are present in those proteins? How are they chopped up to produce different peptides? And so I took this data set that I had, which was, again, a little bit of my data, but mostly the ton of data that Ling Jun had left behind. And I built a database with it. And then I built some statistical um, processing tools. So my father was a professor of statistics at the University of Pittsburgh. And so on, on one of my breaks when I was home, I talked to him about this and he was like, well, you need to try to build this kind of... Anyway, so my dad helped me, uh, which was really super cool. And so we took this data set and used it to predict new neuropeptides. So if somebody gave you a new pro-hormone, could you look at that pro-hormone and predict what peptides uh, would be present? And so that that first manuscript was published in volume two of Journal of Proteome Research uh, and remains to this day the, the paper I'm most proud of. It's that the uh, author list is actually Humman and Humman. It's me and my dad, which is just really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it is really cool okay. that Jonathan let us do that. So anyway, so we started predicting neuropeptides and we demonstrated that this would work, but then we needed a, a, a better t test case. 
And right around this time, the honeybee genome was being sequenced. So this was the era when all the genomes, like cow genome and chicken genome, you know, everybody was throwing in their white papers, arguing that their organism was the most important and should be sequenced. And there was a professor at Illinois, his name is Gene Robinson, and he was, he had put in a white paper to get the honeybee genome sequenced, arguing that the honeybee is critical for food supplies around the world, right? Because it pollinates all our fruits and vegetables. So the honeybee was actually one of the very first genomes to be sequenced. And so we approached him, Jonathan and I approached him and said, hey, do you want to know about the neuropeptide genes? Because if so, we can help you. Uh, and so I started off doing this as a grad student and then eventually I became a postdoc in Gene Robinson's lab working on the honeybees. And so using the honeybees as a test case, so it was it was a really cool project because the genome would be sequenced. It was being sequenced down at Baylor College of Medicine. They would send the traces up and in the morning, well, not the traces, but the sequences. And so I'd spend my mornings doing bioinformatic analyses on these these genome sequences that nobody else had looked at. They'd been sequenced the day before I was the first person to see them. Well, not just me, everyone who was working on the genome. But I mean, these were like fresh off the instrument. It was just really cool going through and predicting neuropeptides. And then I would spend my afternoons um, either out, in, you know, working in the apiary, working with the honeybees themselves or collecting them or checking for neuropeptides. At that time, we had just gotten a QTOF. I remember a QTOF was like really fancy. So, uh, yeah, so testing for the neuropeptides in the honeybee. So anyway, the honeybee became my my test case. So, yeah. And so I, okay, wait, honeybee. So you're, you've got this honeybee, this is... That all these genomes are coming out. What, like, because this is what I'm sure everyone asks, are you doing this little micro dissection? Or are you just kind of grinding them up? Oh, no, we, we, um, we literally, we pop their little heads off like, like that. Um, so you just pop off their heads. And then if you kind of hit them in the back, their skull will, and you pull the brain out. So we pull that. So a honeybee brain has roughly a million neurons. And so you just pull that sucker out and throw it in liquid nitrogen. I, I wish that we had this video because right now Osborne is just like, oh yeah, I pop brains out of insects. <laughs> like what? <laughs> this sounds crazy to me, but I guess I've never, I was a microbiologist who then worked with big animals. So this in between land seems Yeah, no, weird. it's, it's oh. I mean, not to, you know, be casual about the loss of life here, but yeah, we, we harvested quite a lot of uh, honeybees. Yeah, you'd collect them, you'd go out to the, the hives, right, with your doer of liquid nitrogen and the unfortunate ones would get thrown in liquid nitrogen and then you bring them back to the lab. We actually would do the the dissection on dry ice uh, to get the brains. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Because yep. there's this concern there that you have to move fast. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You just want them. Yeah. Well, I also, so I was doing, um, we were not just looking at the neuropeptides. We were also looking at the mRNA. So I was also doing RT-PCR and that degrades pretty quickly. So I, just throw everything yeah. in liquid nitrogen. So. Yeah. Anyway, why is it that every why is it that every time I hear about neuropeptides, it's on some strange <laughs> and I don't mean they're like bees or no, strange, no, no, no. but no. it's like crabs or it's it's just so weird. The, it's things like why? I, so, yeah, why? <laughs> well, okay. So so actually, I jumped right to the honeybees, and I feel slightly guilty because my actually the bulk of my PhD work was with the the marine slug Aplesia californica, right? That you've probably seen, right? And it's like the three pound slug. Um, so the reason that everybody does this is, first of all, the neurons are huge. 
So aplasia has only 10,000 neurons and they're absolutely enormous. And they also, I mean, they only have three physiological behaviors. It's like eat, have sex, and, you know, avoid being eaten, right? Those are the only, so like run away, right? Um, and those are the <laughs> only three behaviors that the slug does. And you can link the different parts of the brain. There's five ganglia in, in aplasia, and you can link those five ganglia back to those three basic functions. And you can link yeah. individual neurons to those very basic functions. So that's a lot of why uh, it just works beautifully. Gotcha. Thank you. I've wanted to know. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, we have like a non-human element at Hupo. So mm -hmm. you know, if you want to talk about slugs, like, <laughs> I feel like we should encourage <laughs> not people to well, I they're going to fire yeah. us. I, I uh, yeah. So after the honeybees, I took a, a a hard right turn and decided at that point to work on human cancers. So it's unfortunately uh, been twenty years since I've worked on the honeybees. As you can tell, I I still love them. I get really excited talking about them. But yeah, everything I do now is all human based. Unfortunately, so no more no more slugs. <laughs> so yeah. So a long, a long time in Champaign Urbana. Are you, are you our Chicago expert for the conference? I am not a Chicago expert. I did visit Chicago a little bit. Um, the main thing I remember is that my uh, my college roommate had an apartment. She had this itty bitty, teeny tiny studio apartment on Michigan Ave, uh, and right right near the water tower. And the main thing I remember it was just across the street some, for some really good shopping. We used to shop by binocular from her apartment. But I used to take the train up to Chicago and spend weekends visiting her. Um, but no, I don't know Chicago as well as I should. But it is a wonderful city. So so we're staying at the Drake, which mm -hmm. I guess we've all... Awesome. I got my room. Yeah. My, my room has a, a water view. Then did you get your room? I have not booked my room yeah. yet. I, oh, not well, either. you might not get a view. Oh, ooh, okay. Let me do that. Okay. So, so, okay. so I was wondering, like it's, it's cold, right? So there's a beach nearby <laughs> the Drake, Oak Street Beach. The temperature, according to this thing, is... It's, that time of year, it's 28 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit. It gets so cold, the water freezes. Like, is that legit? Am I reading that right? Like, it's like the lake is frozen. I, d I don't know about that. I know as you walk through the streets of Chicago, and I know this mostly being there in March for PitCon, as you're walking through the streets, they often have the signs that are like, watch out for ice sliding off the skyscraper. I don't know how you're supposed to protect yourself from this, but they <sighs> will have signs that like when you're walking by the John yeah. Hancock to like look up and make sure that sheets of ice aren't sliding off the hundred foot skyscrapers and killing you. So, okay. More reasons to not leave the hotel. We had this discussion <laughs> last time. I'm just going to stay in the room. Yeah. <laughs> the Drake is an, I, I've stayed in the Drake once before. It is a nice hotel. So this is very exciting. And it's, it's nice because yeah, a lot of times when you go to Chicago, you go to McCormick, which is a nice convention center, but too far out there. With the Drake, we can actually walk to stuff. Oh. I, I have never been, never been to Chicago. Oh, it's I a wonderful city. Illinois. Nope. Nah, it's, it is a wonderful city. Yeah. That's it's like New York. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've been in there a couple of times and I really enjoyed myself. So just kind of passing through. Wait, so you've been to Chicago and you're holding back on all this Chicago. We're so we're trying to put Chicago things in the podcast. I and see. So, and so Ben, wait, you know things? No, I don't at all. No. no. 
Okay. Yeah, well, now there was bleeding all over the lie. You shouldn't be the, the, the most intoxicated person at every company function that was in Chicago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously a much younger version of myself, but, um, that, yeah, that, 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 that is my experience in Chicago. Got it. <laughs> well, and I guess, I guess on that note, um, I mean, I, so yeah, we're going to, so we'll get to see you in Chicago. Wonderful. You're yep. going to be discussing, uh, bees and slugs. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm no longer a current <laughs> expert on those things. <laughs> It'll be great. Okay. <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> great. Um, yeah, no, uh, but so Ben, did you have anything else? No, no. Um, wow, I'm just really excited for this. So, um, like maybe everybody's just come to Chicago. Yeah, it'll be good to finally meet in person, right? Absolutely. It, it is wild, actually, to meet people in person. I, I will say that. I The last conference that US Supo had, I had not met a lot of people. And then I'm like, oh my God, you're huge. Yeah, you're right? like, I this know. one person was I'm very unique. tall. <laughs> I am seven feet tall, just to warn you. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Well, that's good to Appreciate know. That. Uh, but Amanda, thank you, sure. thank you for coming. Well, thank today. you. And again, uh, I apologize that it took three tries to finally make uh, this happen. But I was so worth it. Well, thank it, you very much. Okay, cool. Yeah. And um, so we also we have some credits because at this point they'll be like mm -hmm. it's the end of the show. So um, we want to thank uh, Johannes for the our awesome theme music. Um, we have artwork now for the podcast by um, Kaylee Kirkwood. I guess because this is a podcast, you need to like, subscribe, send us brownies. Diamond. What, four stars? There's stars involved? I don't know. So yeah, so everyone, please, please do subscribe because there's more of these coming out. We have about six more for the, the road to Chicago. Sounds good. And that's all. <laughs>